everybody and welcome or welcome back to the Ocean Riders podcast. Conversations with creatives, entrepreneurs, thinkers and dreamers who also happen to be surfers. I hope you're all well and I'm so happy to be back behind the mic after a two-week break. But I must admit the break did me a world of good and I also caught up with some surfing and that felt so good. Today I got to sit down for a chat with a surfing legend, Tom Wegener. I can't find the words to describe Tom that do him justice. He's just the most enthusiastic, joyous and humble person to talk to. For the few unfamiliar among us, um, Tom Wegener is a surfer, a filmmaker, an actor, author, master shaper and an academic. In fact, he's collected so much wisdom on surfing and shaping over the years that he was recently awarded with a PhD on the sustainability of the surfboard industry. His thesis um, was published last week and is an amazing read towards understanding what it takes to be an artisan shaper in today's economy. Tom is recognised all around the world as a master surfboard shaper, and in fact one of the best. He's specialised in shaping the greenest boards on earth, according to Surfer magazine. His boards have been lauded by surfing geniuses such as Rob Machado and Dave Rastovich. In this conversation, we discuss Tom's tremendous experience in surfing and in shaping. We talk about how his passion for surf archaeology and the discovery of Paulonia wood helped him develop some of the grooviest surfboards on the planet. Tom explains how and why he shares his knowledge around the world, teaching other aspiring shapers to make sustainable boards with actually very basic raw materials. This brings us to Tom's thesis on how artisan craftsmen, in particular the artisan shapers, almost disappeared off the face of the earth in favour of mass-produced boards. And you'll be surprised to find out how this industry resisted, and that's in fact part of Tom's thesis. Finally, we talk about the currency of time and how chasing money isn't as interesting or fun as the concept of real free time. It was an absolute delight and honour to spend an hour with Tom and I love everything about this exchange and I hope you do too. So please welcome Tom Wegener. Hello Tom and welcome to the Ocean Riders podcast. How are you today? Oh great, thanks. It's a real pleasure to be here. It's a it's a pleasure and an honour to have you on the show. Um, before we start, uh, do you think you could introduce yourself to the listeners? Hello, my name is Tom Wegener. I grew up in Southern California and then moved to Australia when I was 33 years old in 1998. And I've been living in Queensland, Australia for the last 21 years up here on Noosa Heads. And I really like surfing and I love the Noosa points. And that's what I'm here for. My, my family's here. We all surf. We all love them. <laughs> that's brilliant. So um, who, um, who introduced you to surfing in the first place? Oh, in Southern California, where I grew up, surfing was really the predominant activity. The Beach Boys um, were playing music when I was born in uh, Redondo Beach High School, just down the road. Uh, it's, uh, Reith was the, was started surfing in Redondo beach. So I was born in Redondo beach and it's just a surfing culture and growing and then moving to Palos Verdes estates. 
it's still a surfing culture. So it was what just what most of the kids did was surfing. Right. Because it was a real time of surfing. Probably the most popular surfing has been in that area. <laughs> so, um, so what was left of the Beach Boys era when you started to surf? You still felt that it was there. You just felt that surfing was it. You know, that the heroes were still surfers. Um, by, yeah, when I was five years old, say, in 1970, you still felt that surfing had a real vibe in, in Redondo Beach and uh, that, that, that part of Los Angeles where it was all happening. Mm-hmm. By 1976, mm-hmm. when I was surfing every day, um, you still had that vibe that surfing was it and super popular and the shortboard revolution was in full swing and it was in full swing in our backyard. So we really felt as if we were riding this incredible wave of surfing and, and being a part of a really evolutionary sport or art form that, that was changing every year. Right. And so we, we kept evolving and we kind of liked it. We liked that next year. We don't know what we're going to be doing next year. It's exciting. That's brilliant. You, you actually sort of made it into becoming a, a professional um, longboarder in the 80s and the 90s. What was that like? Um, was there a lot of money to be made in, in longboarding? No, there wasn't. But we didn't know that at the time. You see... <laughs> Shortboarding was taking off gangbusters, and then I worked with the the blank companies and stuff, and I was seeing that longboarding was equally as popular in the water as shortboarding. So we were having these contests, and we were pushing the way that we saw that longboarding should go, and it was exciting, and we thought that there would be money in it, and and that's what kind of that wasn't really the real reason that we did it, but it was kind of an incentive. Because, wow, you know, we can make a living from surfing. And very few people really make a living from surfing, especially back then. And we saw that we might be able to have a chance at it. And so we did the longboard contest. And then I, when I, I was actually too old by that time to really get into the contest so much. Or I graduated out of the contest and I went into making movies. And so I made uh, four, four surf movies that did very well, actually, overall. That, that, that's amazing. And you also had a, a TV show called um, Waterman TV. How did that sort of, what was the inception of Waterman TV and, and all, the, <laughs> all, the, all, the, all the films that you made? Well, my version of surfing was I wanted to start surf longboarding where it left off in 68, 69, 70. Because Back then, in the 1980s, when I was in high school, 1980, 1979 to 1983, all those boards from the 1960s were around still, and they were worthless because that was riding Weber performers, and I was riding Nueva Nose Riders, and I was riding... Um, the the Velzy step decks. And I was riding all these boards from the 1960s and I really understood them. And I must say, I had gone through a hundred 1960s longboards while I was in high school. Like my friends, we just would just trade them around. But we really got to understand the dynamics of where the 1960s shapers were. And remember, the 1960s were only 10 years before. So we were still in that realm of, of understanding these boards. And I had a, a, because longboarding was so unpopular, we could drive to Malibu and just for, surf first by Malibu with maybe 10 people in the water riding all of these old right. 1960s boards. So 
we I got addicted to being like a surf um, anthropologist or archaeologist that I was studying and I was finding out what this ancient culture 10 years before had lost. And so what, what started the Waterman TV show was this wonder and, and to bring back this, this feeling of the, the 1960s because through the 1980s, you had Quicksilver and Billabong and the companies going big and shortboarding was getting really popular. And then the Trifin came along and it became a very aggressive sort of masculine culture and I said well no I don't I don't like that I want to go back to the 60s we kind of missed the boat I wanted to do that over again so all of my movies and my tv shows and sort of like for 20 years I made surfboards and relived and un tried to understand like I lived the 1960s far longer than the 1960s actually lasted <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's brilliant so you, you were introduced to to, um, to shaping quite early on. What was the, your first surfboard like? Well, yeah. Um, so 1976, I started surfing every day. And by 78, 79, most of the kids in my area that were good surfers were making their own surfboards. So I would go to the bottom of the cliff and find some old surfboard that had been thrown off in the past and reshape it and glass it. And I learned the art then. And then by 1980, well, probably 81, I started seeing that I wanted to ride longboards and been riding the heavy 1960s longboards, but I wanted to make a lighter one and to incorporate those design elements into modern longboards or I guess modern traditional longboards. And um, so I started making what I wanted. So I, I liked, I knew what I liked in the old boards, and then I tried to remake it in new boards. Right. And by 1983, I'd made a lot of longboard nose riders. So, so if we fast forward uh, to when you arrived in Australia um, and you fell in love with your wife and, um, and the country and you found Polonia wood um, and, um, and that was an amazing breakthrough for you. Could you tell us a bit more about that? Well, oh, so the way I started using Polonia was uh, coming to Australia. My friend Paul Joski introduced me to this wood. And I went surf surfing on his board, which is a chambered Polonia surfboard. And it brought me back to riding the balsa wood boards that I had ridden in the 80s. Because even in the 80s, I bought my Greg Knoll rounded pin 9.6 balsa board for $21. I sold it for $500 after I destroyed it. And then it was worth about $10,000 a few years later. So I was riding lots of balsa wood boards. And then finally, I found this wood that is easy to shape. It's grown on plantations. It's really green. Man, if I could make surfboards out of that, I would be really stoked and they'd last forever. So then I, I worked with that and developed a way to make hollow Polonia surfboards that look like balsa wood boards. And they surf like balsa wood boards, but they were you know, much easier to make, much easier to deal with than balsa wood and a lot cheaper to make than balsa wood. Right. And so polonia wood, so it's, it's, a, it's a tree that grows in Australia, but it, it seems super sustainable um, because it grows so fast and so big in such little time. It's like a bamboo tree kind of thing. Uh, could you tell us a bit more about how um, the plantation and how, how they grow and how sustainable they are? Well, they're, they're terrifically sustainable and um, they're from the Orient uh, China and, and before China was China, it, they were using polonia trees over there. And there's a legend that says when you're when you have a daughter, you plant a polonia tree. So by the time the daughter is ready to be married, you cut the polonia tree down 
and you could mill it and you could make all the furniture for their house wow. from that tree. So they grow very quickly. Um, and so they, they take a lot of carbon out of, out of the air. Uh, the wood is very straight, very easy to use, but mostly it doesn't absorb salt water. And it has this fluky characteristic that I found that it doesn't. And I, I'm sure that I'm the first person to ever really realize that how good it'd be for surfboards. And the reason I was using it when I first got here is because it was the modern longboard era and the blanks when you buy, when you go to shape a blank, um, I, I, the stringers are very thin and the, the, the width of the tails was very narrow in Australia. And I wanted to make my nose riders from the 1960s and I needed to put an inch thick to a two inch thick stringer into the board in order to get the width in the tail so I could make a nine six board out of a nine six blank. And that's how I really started using the wood and discovering it. And when I found out how good it was and how, how sustainable it was and it was grown on plantations, then I just jumped in and started making the whole board out of Polonia. And so that's the story. But then, so I was making the, the hollow wood boards and they were going really well. And um, my friends, Thomas Campbell and Nathan Oldfield and um, the Surfer's Journal and these various magazines and were, were putting my boards in. And that was really great. It was a real honor. And then I went to Hawaii to look at the ancient boards. And the first thing I thought is when I lifted up the Olo and uh, the boards in the Bishop Museum, the truly ancient surfboards made out of koa, my first thought was, well, I bet they wish they had Polonia. <laughs> it's such a good wood to work with. And they didn't have it. It wasn't a wood indigenous to Hawaii. Is it is it very heavy? No. it's Well, it's a little bit heavier than balsa, but it's lighter than redwood. So it, it is a light wood. And it has beautifully straight grain. That's lovely to sand and to, to plane. It's just gorgeous for hand tools. That's that's amazing. And um, also, is it does it sort of offer more flexibility to balsa wood or to the other koa woods and things like that when you're surfing? Well, it does. Like this wood <laughs> was sincerely made by God for surfing, because it stretches and it bends, but it doesn't. It doesn't. It's it maintains its rigidity, but it's very flexible. So it's like a spring. And so even alayas that I have that I've been surfing for 10 years and just, just oil them, the board is just like new. So it hasn't lost any of its rigidity. And the, the alayas are very bendy and flexy boards. So I've, I've shown and to myself proven how amazing this stuff is. Because when I was up in Papua New Guinea, I was making lots of boards with balsa wood. And it just doesn't have the same flex at all. It doesn't have the same bounciness because we're making alayas up there with with balsa wood, and the, the poloni just surfs so much better. That's amazing. So, so how did you end up in Papua New Guinea? Well, when I was doing my research, um, a group up there at a surf camp called the Tupira Surf Camp said, "Tom, the, the locals used to surf here with the wood boards." But now all they want to do is surf on foam surfboards. So some of uh, foam surfboards are donated very generously. But there's only about five or six foam surfboards for about 50 kids. And the, um, the 50 kids didn't have enough boards, so they sat around on shore. And so they said, well, why don't we use some of our indigenous tools? Why don't we use some of our indigenous trees and make wood surfboards that are better? But, you know, they said, no, no, the wood isn't a good product, you know, good way to make surfboards. So they said, well, let's get Tom Wagner up here. And so let him shape surfboards with you guys and see if we can sort of just upgrade the boards that we're making. 
and we did. And we, we, I went up there three times. And the last time that WSL had a longboarding contest there and the, and they, we had an event where a local kid would surf along with a pro, but both of them had to ride a local board. And so you'd have a blue team and then there'd be a red team with a local kid and a pro on both on local boards. And the local, these, you know, these surfers are so good, like Harley Ingleby and, and Tyler Jensen. They paddle out on these, you know, very primitive style sort of boards and they shredded. Really? And so all the local really? kids and about the 2000 Papua New Guineans that were watching were going, oh, my God, it's not the boards. You know, it's just that we've got to raise our game. And so, yeah, it was, it was a really wonderful experience because they actually got to see that they can surf. Um, an, a finless Alea surfboard or even a board with a very, you know, a fin that's just chopped into the board can still surf really, really, really well. It's not it's not the board, it's the surfer. So, yeah, it, it went well and, and it started up a local industry in Papua New Guinea and they're selling the boards that they're making because they have infinite supply of balsa wood up there. That's so now they, they're making them and selling them. That's so it's this local industry. And it, it, it the most important thing is it got the villagers using the hand tools again, because the hand tools had pretty much been forgotten. You know, they have their chainsaw and, you know, a couple of a couple of tools. They don't have phones. They don't have electricity. They don't have sewer. Nobody has a car. They're out in the bush there, but they still they still don't want to use the hand tools. And we, we kind of re, reignited that um, hand tool use and uh, make things out of wood and sell them. And, you know, the tourists will come and buy them for sure. That's enchanting. That's a lovely story, actually. Actually, to sort of go back to... Um... What you said earlier, where you were saying that you're a sort of sur- um, a sh- a surfboard archaeologist. So you went to the Bishop Museum in Hawaii. What is the Bishop Museum exactly for the listeners? The Bishop Museum is in, in the Central Pacific. It's the biggest museum full of artifacts and culture and um, history from the whole region. And it has the biggest collection of ancient surfboards. So I went there to see the ancient surfboards. Unfortunately, the the boards are put away in an annex, not for people to see. So you have to get permission. And I was very, very, very fortunate that I was able to get permission and had a special guide go down and look at the surfboards. And um, you weren't supposed to touch them, but I, I may have touched them and templated them anyway and came back and made replicas. <laughs> Yeah, so that was just, and when I saw that, when you see these boards, I just couldn't believe it. Like, um, it makes the hair stand up on your back. You you start tingling. You're just like, oh my God, look at this. Because they were flat with, be- well, they had beautiful curves, but no rocker, a beautiful concave and rolls and straight rails and looking down them, they were, they were really well, well shaped. I mean, they weren't primitive looking at all. They, they were advanced, finely shaped craft, and, and, and you could tell that they had been surfed, and that's another thing. You know, the dings and the rips in the boards, you could see where somebody had, you know, gone over the falls and landed on it on a rock, and you could see that they had been used, and for me, that was really exciting to see that these ancient surfboards were truly used surfboards. Absolutely. That must have been so uh, so moving, actually, to sort of touch something that had belonged to the past and that had been used in the past. Actually, so that inspired you to, to sort of make replicas of these surfboards. So could we sort of talk uh, shortly about the Alaya and the Olo, um, just for the, for the listeners to understand what kind of boards these, these look like? 
Well, yeah, the Olo is the board of royalty, and they call it the king's surfboard. And um, back then, only the royalty could ride this this particular style board, the really big boards, and the alayas are the much shorter, thinner boards, and they were for everybody else. <laughs> the Olo is, is majestic to surf, so I made it. I made one for myself, and then after a year, David Rostovich surfed mine, and I made him one as well. He, he wanted one a lot. And it was the most expensive surfboard I've ever made because it was a 16-foot-long, solid piece of wood surfboard. And they, when you take off on a wave with them, they're so heavy that they actually, when you take off, you're behind the wave. The board is in the middle of the wave, and the nose of the board is in front of the wave. And as the crests up, you sort of pull down in the middle of the wave. So you've got to move your shoulders sideways and keep your feet um, forward on the board because it's like a parting of the Red Sea as you take off in the wave and for just a moment you come from behind the wave through the wave and out to the front of the wave where the board is by itself turning mid-face so it's it's quite an electric takeoff it's 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 amazing um and you feel really feel the energy of the waves so much more than i think any other surfboard and a lot of that's just a big heavy wood surfboard and um and you know well they're beautifully shaped they're absolutely gorgeous um they're six and a half inches thick. They're 19 inches wide, uh, 16 feet long. And they're so heavy that it really to carry one for 100 meters, you need four strong people. Really? Because you, two people will really hurt themselves. You need four people to actually carry the board. And that's like, that's not, that's not an exaggeration. It, they're that heavy. <laughs> that's amazing. So you really need to be a, a member of the royal family to have people sort of carry your, uh, your board for you. Um... Well, that's funny, you know. You know, as as an as an archaeologist, I try to get into the mindset of the ancient Hawaiians and what they thought about. And so, there's one story where uh, a captain, a whaling captain, a Western captain, went down to the beach looking for the chief. And they said, "Oh, chief's out there surfing." And he goes, "Can you go get him?" And they said, "Oh, no, no, no. Nobody gets the chief while he's surfing. Just wait here." So he's waiting and he's waiting and he's waiting, and then he notices that they're all naked. And so he goes back to the guys and says, hey, I'll, they're all naked. How am I going to tell who the chief is? And they said, oh, the chief will be the only one not carrying a surfboard. <laughs> <laughs> it's so funny. It's so funny. <laughs> the boards are so heavy. You want to die carrying them. You just can't believe how heavy anything is. It's like lifting, your, like, like lifting a car down the road. Like it's that heavy. Like you're just struggling. Oh, my God. In the water, they're okay, but on land, they're horrible. And and do, do they have fins, or they, are they completely flat? On, or not flat, but sort of, you can't see anything sticking out. No. Now, the funny thing about them is that they're six inches, six and a half inches thick, and it's hard to tell which side's the top and which side's the bottom, because they mirror each other. So you have a very round bottom and a very round top. And then... There's no rocker in the board, so the deck goes down to the nose and the bottom comes up to the nose, and the same in the tail. So it's, it, the, the shape is like if you had an egg, and you took the egg and you cut it in half, and you took out the middle half of the egg. So you cut the egg into three pieces and took the, the, the center piece out and put them back together again and going lengthwise. That's the shape of the Olo. It's kind of thicker and narrower at one end and um, wider in yeah, um, 
skinny, not skinny, but like it's so it's about two inches thick off the nose and about four inches thick off the tail. And then they, it comes in. So it's a funny, funny shape, but it's a beautiful shape. It looks really alive when you see them in the distance. <laughs> beautiful shape. Amazing. And, and, the, and the Alaya, that's, that's a different shape board, right? So those are very, very thin. And in the museum, the thing that struck me is you didn't want to touch them because they look so thin that you would break them. And so the goal was obviously to make the Koa Alayas as thin as you possibly could. And I've learned that now it's easier to paddle onto a wave with a very light board because the, the weight to the koa is so heavy that it works against you. Right. So you actually want to make them as thin as you can so you can really see that. You can see the the Hawaii, the ancient Hawaiian in the water, the waves coming. They push and, and try to paddle that board, and they can get that board up onto a plane in about four or five paddles, but they couldn't really paddle it any further because it takes so much strength just to get a heavy piece of wood up onto a plane so you can drop into the wave. Right, and and in fact, they have an expression in Hawaii called lala. Um, could you could you explain to the listeners what what that means? Because it sounds fascinating. Well, when Jacob Stuth and I, so Jacob Stuth is my team writer at the time, and he helped me so much develop the alayas. And we were reading the literature, mostly by Ben Finney in his book um, Hawaiian Surfing, which was written in about 1965, and he was describing the Olo surfing as, as one thing and the Elias surfing as Lala surfing. And Lala was roughly translated as controlled slides in the pocket of the wave. And so what that means is you can be going across the wave, engaging your edge, and then you lift your edge and you can just slide sideways down the wave so that you can slide sideways and then engage, engage your rail and climb up the face again, and then do a spin and engage like a hockey puck on top of the water, spinning and sliding, and then you engage your rail again. So it's a, it's a, a, a yeah, a, a sliding then engagement. Sorry, like drifting in a car. Yeah, well, that's that exactly. When you're going around a corner, if all four of your tires are engaged, you you go around the corner, and then there's another way of going around a corner where all tires are sliding. And you're, you know, when everything's sliding and like like that, well, that's the same. That's that's the uh, that's the la la feeling, and it feels so good. It feels great. <laughs> and do you have to be a really good surfer to be able to surf a, an alaya? You do. To, a proper alaya, you have to be very, 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 very good. It's a matter of I just recommend just belly board it. Don't even try to stand up unless you are really on your game because they are difficult. Even the the. Uh, uh, Polonia ones that I make are still so difficult that probably seven out of 10 that I made ended up on the wall, you know, just like, well, I tried, and I gave up, I gave up, forget it, you know, too hard. But you've also partnered with um, Global Surf Industries to create a sort of a liar, but it's a, a, a foam um, based surfboard, the albacore. Is that a kind of compromise? So yeah, so the whole Lala style was so exciting for me, riding the Alayas. And as a shaper, I was making them, but getting so much feedback, like, I can't do it. I can't do it. Surely my board sucks, you know, because I'm a great surfer. How come I can't do this? And so then I, I went on the mission to say, well, I need to make a, a, a board shaped with the same shape, basically, but floats. And even more flex would even be better if I could get more flex than a regular um, Alaya. And so see, the, the thinner I made the Polonia, the more likely it was to crack. The better it surfed, but the more likely it was to crack. 
because we were getting down to so thin, just such a thin, you know, um, maybe seven millimeters thick going across. So they will crack. So, yeah, I, I went to Global Surf Industries and said, this is a new style of surfing. It's like the new snowboarding. You know, can you give me a hand? And they sent me blanks. So they said, well, here's 12 big 10 foot four super dense foam blanks go for your life. And if you can make a prototype that works as good as you say it will, then they'll license it. I, I worked really hard. It was the most fun time. It was the most fun time in my surfing career, I think, because I had this, you know, complete goal like this. Like I, if I, if I can get this to work, if I can get this to work. So I made about 27 of them and just huh, all so many trials and tribulations. And each board was narrowing the narrowing to what, what the basic all around surfboard would be. And I did it, and I found the, the very basic middle-of-the-road boards the, 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 with the same flotation and everything. Now, the reason I had to use the foam from Global Surf Industries was uh, they weren't blowing dense foam in Australia at the time. And so I couldn't really tr make a board without it filling up with water or just falling apart on me. Now they do blow dense foam, so I may not have gone to Global Surf Industries back then, but I, I just didn't have the materials to do it. And Global Surf Industries, by the way, has have been wonderful to me, and they really backed me. And so, you know, it's it's part of this selling out thing. We're all Tom, you know, you've sold out. I was like, well, I couldn't do it, you guys. Like, oh, but you sold out. And sometimes, after doing the Alea project and making the Hollywood surfboards and going so far out on the edge for so long, and then, you know, really having a legitimate reason to go to Global Surf Industries and partner with somebody because you're really tired of, of doing it on your own. And then to have some wanker say, oh, you sold out, you know, it really was hard for a long time. Even, well, Derek Hinden had a, Derek Hinden, I had a huge ruffle in the press and he's a writer. He was the biggest newspaper in Australia. Uh, the Sunday edition had a, this big sidebar quote, Tom Wagoner sold out. <laughs> and to the editor, I said, look, you know, that's pretty rough. You know, you, you put my side in as well. But, you know, the, the big quote, you know, basically on the top was, Tom Wagoner sold out finless surfing. <laughs> and the other thing, he killed Bambi. You know, surfing with this new finless type of surfing was Bambi. And it was going to grow into something incredible. But he, he shot it. He shot Bambi by selling out and putting out this surfboard and ruining it for, for all of us entrepreneur innovation people out there. And I'm like, no, no, no. <laughs> so anyways, that was, that sparked me to do the whole PhD thing. Exactly. So today is the, um, is the day your PhD comes out. And, um, I was wondering what, if you could sort of give us a, um, a rundown on what it's, what it's all about. Well, so at the, I, as I was doing making the albacore and with working with global surf industry i saw the the global financial crisis coming i i was in california when the banks were melting down i couldn't believe the despair in the air and i said oh this is going to be a global recession and it's going to come to australia soon and so then i licensed the board to global surf industries and sure enough the recession did come to australia and what happened in australia was you had um, everybody, people weren't spending money. Uh, the Australian dollar went up in value because at that time we actually had a, a mining boom here in Australia. So the iron ore prices went up. So the Australian dollar actually went up in value 
So if people did spend money, they bought stuff for, from overseas. So luckily, I was with Global Surf Industries, and I was selling my albacores in Australia. However, every other board was coming in as well. And so um, they, they, the Hayden boards and the Waldens and all these other different boards were flooding into Australia because they were so cheap all of a sudden, where um, Australian products just kept going up and up and up in price. So we had, so I was kind of really up against it. And I thought the Australian surfboard industry was going to die because a lot of my friends had left it. Uh, they, they just said, Tom, I'm not going to make surfboards anymore. There's no money in it anymore. All these imports are coming in, you know, the whole thing, it's all over. The, the good years are over. So I started to do a PhD with the idea of I can help these people. Maybe there's something that I could do to, you know, as a researcher to, to figure out something, some regulation or who knows what, but something. And then by 2014, which is about three or four years after the GFC really started here, I was in Byron Bay and all of a sudden these hipsters were everywhere. Guys with long hairs and beards and they were these shapers and they were shapers everywhere making surfboards. And then even in Noosa, um, two or three of the guys said, oh, look, Tom, I know that you're kind of out of it. Can I buy your tools? I want to start a surfboard factory in Noosa. And like, you're kidding. Like, no, there's. And so all of a sudden, I, I really credit the hipsters with this of uh, going retro and buying surfboards and wanting something beautiful and something groovy and, you know, something not from China, something not made overseas. You know, they wanted to be a part of the source of surfing and to, and to support the local artisans and they did it and they did it with coffee and they did it with all sorts of stuff and it was just a real mindset that shifted shifted back towards hey let's let's buy our local product right now and it and i think it it kind of saved the surfboard industry and now it's the, the local industry is, is pretty strong like you know not there's quite a few people that can live a life of making surfboards and, and do it for a living and that's marvelous that's fantastic. That, that is really, really good news. And thank you. Thank you to the hipsters of, of the world. That, that's really interesting. So it, the, the whole PhD is actually studying um, the evolution of the surfboard industry in Australia and um, around the world. Is that correct? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It, well, it, it studies it and it studies why, the, why, why it's still here and why the surfboard industry is still vibrant and I compare it to tennis rackets and um, uh, baseball bats and and cricket bats and golf clubs. Australia made the best golf clubs in the world and they were individually made golf clubs and Arnold Palmer and um, a lot of the great golfers were using custom-made golf clubs and you'd be thinking yeah why wouldn't you have a custom-made golf club and that just vanished to overseas and so there's not one maker of golf clubs in Australia and cricket bats. I think that just now they're starting to make some bespoke cricket bats here, but all those industries just disappeared. And so, and the thought was that surfing was going to go the same way. And so the, the article the, the PhD eventually became why hasn't surfing? Why, why, why do we still have a surfboard industry here? And what I found was it's the culture, it, the culture of surfing that the hipsters kind of, reinvented was just support your local local industry and you you want something new you want something special you want something unique you don't want to be like everybody else and your, your surfboard is a part of your own identity and you define yourself and do you want to define yourself with a surfboard that everybody else has or do you want to define yourself 
with this surfboard that you helped design and these are your colors and this is you know this is a representative representative of, of who you are and that that's where that's why surfing keeps re reinventing itself and the culture supports the, the surfboard maker see in the surfboard industry has three things that 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 I, this is my, might have found one is there's, there's a low barrier of entry so just about anybody can make surfboards and that the, um yeah, it doesn't, doesn't take much raw materials or anything to do. It just takes a garage, basically, to make surfboards. Um, second, you have to believe that you can do it, which is actually a funny stumbling block for a lot of places in the world because they believe, like even in Papua New Guinea, they were thinking, I can't make a surfboard that'll be good. And I go, yeah, you can. Of course you can. Let's get this balsa wood and do this, and you can do this. You can, you can, be, a surf, you can be the world's greatest surfboard maker even. And then – the third is you need a culture that supports the, this artisanal industry. So if you have those the low, low, low barrier of entry, the belief that you can do it, and a culture that supports that industry, then you can have a sustainable industry. And I think that goes across the board, actually. It's, it's, a, very, it's, it's, a, it's a combination I'm seeing that's, that's actually really translatable to a lot of stuff, different things. But um, with surfboards is probably the best example of it. That is fascinating. That is really interesting information. And in fact, would we be able to put in the links in the show notes um, a link to your PhD so that the listeners could actually so that you could share your knowledge with them? Is that something that's possible? Oh, yeah, please. Yeah, put the link up. As a matter of fact, I mean, it just came out today and I would love everybody to download my PhD. The, my, now, my book, so I wrote a book along with the PhD mm-hmm. because I, I couldn't wait for um the PhD to go through the, the normal peer review process. So I, I wrote the book and submitted it as my PhD and it caused a bit of headaches for the university because you're not supposed to do that, <laughs> but I did it. And so the book is a part of my PhD. So you can, if you look at it, just go to page, I think 67 or so the book begins. And then you, there's the whole, my book is, is right there for anybody to read because it is my PhD. Wow. And please download it and send it to your friends and anybody that's re- researching um, surfing. It's a, it is a really good resource. And then, of course, within my book, you have the references of the bibliography and you can go back and you can, you know, keep, keep referencing going on and on and on. But it's a really great place to start for anybody interested in surfing, surf culture, um, especially ancient. My, I've got a, a really strong part on ancient Hawaiian surfing and, and uh, Hawaiian culture. Because I have to, yeah, you, well, you have to start there. You, you have to have a book that really gets into ancient Hawaiian surfing. And that as a, the, the, the magic of ancient Hawaiian surfing is the culture that it brings to us. When Duke Kahanamoku came here, he didn't hide in the shed someplace saying, I'm going to make a surfboard. Nobody can see this. Duke said, everybody come. I'm going to make the surfboard here and I want you all this to ride it and I'll teach you how to do this. So the right from the get-go, surfing was about sharing the stoke of surfing and not keeping it to yourself. And that's that's the aloha. That is that is Hawaiian spirit. And I think it's really strong because surfing is really, really booming around the world right now, as you as you know. Yeah. Absolutely. And that's that's such a, a lovely a lovely transition actually to um to the next part because obviously did you have to take a lot of time off work to um to actually write this PhD and write these books what how did you manage your time well <laughs> I was very lucky I, I got a nice grant I got a grant that I could um you know my, my wife had to take on a full-time job and writing the writing the PhD was a full-time job as well 
but it, we uh, in Australia you have nice grants for that to uh, to help you help you do it to get along. Plus, I was still making surfboards while while writing it as well. But it took um, two and a half years to to write the book. To, to once I figured out what I was going to do to 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 get it all together. Yeah, it was a big. It was it was good. It was if writing a PhD is hard to do. It, it there's so much stuff you hoops you have to jump through, and and people. They kind of read it and they kind of don't read it. And then they don't get it. <laughs> so I was very lucky in that I had surfer friends and uh, one of my good friends, Alan McGuire, who's a attorney in Brisbane, kept reading my drafts. And you know, Alan doesn't make sense. He goes, "Yeah, Tom, this is great." So he helped. He you know really helped me along. When it was peer reviewed, it was actually peer reviewed by really good surfers, and then it went through the academic process. <laughs> That's fantastic, and so um, just to, just to sort of finish off the the, the shaping chapter of, the, of of this conversation, um, which um, I've got two questions actually. What 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 design are you the most proud of in terms of the, the surfboards that you've made over the over over the years? Well, um, first is I've taken the whole Alaya design and um, and made it made the board that I envisioned making literally 10 years ago when I started the whole albacore process. And that's a board that I can make any shape I want that wants that has a flex pattern that can be as flexible as I want it and still not break. And so since after doing the PhD, I've been making boards with new materials, which is the extruded polystyrene foam, sheets of polonia. So I have two millimeter veneers of polonia and cork. And by sandwiching the polonia and then a thin layer of foam, maybe um, a centimeter thick, and then more layers of polonia, I could make, I can change my flex patterns through the boards. The tail's very flexible, and the middle of the board is relatively rigid, and, and the, the nose is very rigid, so that your, your, your nose is rigid as it catches the water, and then your tail flexes into turns. And it's a I envisioned the board when riding Aleas so long ago, saying, man, could, if I could make this board, I'd be so stoked. And it took years of persistence. And I made so many mistakes. And not really mistakes, but you try this, you try that, you try this, you try that. And it took me two and a half years with the Corky project to make the board that I wanted to make in the first place. And I recently made it, and it's up on, by, um, up on YouTube and on my Instagram, if you kind of search through it, I really don't have it on my website yet because I, I always do my website last and never get around to it. Um, but it, yeah, I did it. I've made this this board. I'm calling it the Gus model after Gus O'Malley, and it has a it has a it has a tail that's so flexible that you can it can grab water whenever you want or release it whenever you want at a at, at a breath's notice. Mm, and then after that, then there's yeah, then there's all sorts of other boards. Yeah, just so many. I've screwed around a lot. I, I think that. I've, I've, I have a low overhead and, um, you know, a very simple life here. And Australia has afforded me the opportunity to do this kind of stuff, to, to really tinker in my shed and make enough money to, to pay the bills and so forth. We're not wealthy by any stretch, but we've always had enough. You know, our kids have not, have not missed out on anything, I don't think, um, and making surfboards. So you can do it. You know, you, it is possible to to make really weird stuff be being be an artisan and surfing affords you to be an artisan in a lot of ways the culture will back you 
if you do a really good job and you try really hard. <laughs> <laughs> That's fantastic. And, and uh, the second question was, are there any uncharted territories you'd like to explore in the next, in the coming years? There is. Well, my goal is to teach, help teach people how to shape surfboards and, and, and to bring this stoke that I shared through the 1970s. So I'm going to Taiwan where they make a zillion surfboards, but they make them in big factories. And I'm going to, to my, to one of the guys that shapes him, a guy from Taiwan. I showed him how to shape surfboards. He's gone back and he set up a little um, bespoke factory there in Taiwan. I'm going to go there and I'm going to work with him and helping him. And then I'm going to South Korea and there's a little surfboard factory there. So I go to these guys and I'm showing them my method and saying, you know, you don't have to use resin. You don't have to use get, get blanks from U.S. blanks. You can make you can go down the street literally and buy the stuff to make a great surfboard right here. You just need a, a vacuum bag and a hot wire and you could make anything with these. You know, if you have this, this thin cork and the foam that you can get at any hardware store basically in the world. And if you can resource the, the veneer polonia, you can make belly boards, thrusters, um, long boards, 12 footers. You can make an Olo. You can make anything from these three basic materials. And that's been my goal is, is to, to get people back into making surfboards because making surfboards as a high schooler was the best part of my life. I mean, I just love that, the excitement of making things with your hands. And I'm just, yeah, now in, in basically my old age, that's my goal is to help people make surfboards. <laughs> that's fantastic. And, and to me, because, you know, in Taiwan, they think that I can never make a surfboard. I don't know how to make a surfboard. Or in Korea, you know, they, they don't have actually those. It's a low, still a low barrier of entry, and there's still a culture that will support them. It's actually that, can I do it? I don't know how to do this. I don't want to look like a fool. And, you, you know, say, well, no, we should, I'll, get you, I'll get you past that looking like a fool stage in, in a day and a half. Like, it's pretty easy. <laughs> <laughs> that's fantastic. There's something that's really, that, that, that seems to be a sort of leitmotiv through, through the whole of your, of your life course is that, the balance between work and and family time and actually time in general. Do you think you could sort of tell us a bit more about the philosophy? Well, yeah. You know, going to Mexico as a younger guy, um, when I was living in California, you saw such a different culture because the thing that was valued most was free time because everybody labored so hard that it, when you became old, you didn't have money. There was very little currency. Currency was time and family, basically, but it seemed really time. If you, a wealthy man or a woman, didn't have to work, and that was wealth, was just free time. And we, our society is just so opposite, where, you know, you work. You're like, like freedom is the freedom to work 18 hours a day. Um, and so... Um, I, I think that that yeah, free free time, like the chasing chasing money all the time, is pretty isn't as interesting or isn't as fun or isn't as fulfilling as just free time. The concept of free time and balancing, so really appreciating free time and and um, thinking to yourself that the most valuable thing you have is is time with your kids. Is mm -hmm. is that free time? Mm -hmm. That time. That's it. That's there's nothing more valuable than that. Like I um. I worked so hard in, in 2004, I had to make all these boards and it was super hot down here and I ended up getting pneumonia. And I, when I was in the hospital bed, there was these three old men who also had pneumonia in this room. And those guys, they knew that they were on their way out 
And two of them said, oh, the greatest thing I ever did. The greatest thing I ever did was take my family around um, uh, around Australia in a van or in their car. And they went camping and they went camping for 18 months with their kids. And they said, that was it. You know, guys, you said, man, that that was the best time in my life. That's all they remembered on, on their deathbed was that free time. None of them talked about their how much money they had made or their house or their car. You know, it was only, yeah, I spent a lot of time with my kids. That was it. So that was my goal as well, is to spend time with my kids. Mm-hmm. That's, that's, that's beautiful. And, and and so how does that translate in a day-to-day basis? Because I guess they're grown up now and um, are they still, do you still get to, t- to spend time with them? I do. Um, my, my daughter and I, we went to Korea last year and had two weeks there. And that was really a fun bonding time. And she was 16 years old. And uh, my son lives in Brisbane, which is two hours away. And we go down there and, and spend time together as well. Um, of course, it's not as much time. Maybe I do wish I had money so I could say, okay, everybody, let's hop on a plane and you know fly to the south of France for for a month and hang out with each other. We don't do that. But yeah, we still really value. I mean, I love time with my kids. And at least um, I was a home parent and I had my factory, you know, it's right here in, in, as my shed in the yard. And I, I did grow up with my kids. And I think that's a part of, you know, being a, a self-employed person like that is you're not working for the man. You're not you're not making the big dollars, but you are spending time with your kids. That's the most valuable part. So you're you're a millionaire if you can take all weekend off and hang out with your kids all weekend. You know, because it doesn't last very long where they actually want to hang out with you. That, that's only a, it's a pretty narrow window, isn't it? Yeah, I'm you going mean? through that at the moment right now. Yeah, they've sort of. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they, they, they're growing up and they don't want to hang out with us anymore. So it's uh, yeah, definitely make the most if you have kids, make the most of the time um, when they want to spend time with you. That's really important. And um, yeah. what about health in the whole equation? How how, how important is uh, for you sort of taking care of yourself and um, having a healthy lifestyle or, you know, grow, growing your vegetables in the garden? I've done my best, um, but I'm, I'm, I'm surely there's many, many people that are healthier than I am. I, I, I'm a workaholic in a way. I mean, I love my free time. Don't get me wrong, but um, what I do, I don't spend a lot of time exercising you know, and, and doing yoga, which I should be doing every day. I do every couple of days. And my, you know, we, I, you know what my problem is? And it's, it's far from a problem. It's probably what you'd call the champagne problem. And that is almost every night there's a small party at my house. Almost every night there's people coming over and we're hanging out and, the, you know, the champagne gets popped and so forth. And we just have so much fun. And that's, that, that's, really the goal and I think that's one of the payments you get as a surfboard shaper or being you know a a guitar maker or that you're involved in a community that's lovely and and the conversations are philosophical and um, you know they're not about money they're not about the new car they're not about you know how much money you're making they're all about um, you know the world and art and fashion and music and so I, I love the community here and I think Noosa may be more than many places, but I'm sure there's many places more than Noosa where this new culture that values spending time with each other is is very strong. That's really interesting. And and also people can actually come and stay with you guys. Um, you have a surf stay. How does that work? Well, in order to help people make their surfboards, they can come here and make their surfboard with me. 
And so uh, I have all the materials. And so it's, what do you want to make? Oh, I want to make a, a twin fin. Okay, well, let's get the hot wire out. Here's this piece of foam. Cut the cut that. Um, cut a rocker. Glue. Cut the blank in, in, in half. Glue the glue the board together with a rocker. Start shaping it. Vacuum bag the veneer onto the bottom. Shape the deck. You know, put the veneer the vacuum bag the top on. And while we're doing it, they're they're actually doing most of the work. So they're getting to use their hands. And and then through the process, there's so much talking because we talk about well. Which types of fins do you want? Do you want one on flat on one side, and or do you want to be foiled on both sides? And then this, you know, what's the difference? And you kind of go, well, you know, here's the difference. And you can describe exactly what the difference is, and and how much concave do you want? Well, how much should I have? And then you go through, what is a concave? What does a concave do? You know, traditionally, where did it come from? Blah blah blah. So it takes an hour to discuss a concave, and then you want down rails or more round rails? Oh well, you know, and you go through. The designs you go to the books you know i have all these reference books so the the process is so fun about um learning the, you know the whole surfboard as we make it and i you know it, it takes several days like normally when you go shape a surfboard the shaper it, it, it takes over about an hour here it takes three full days and it's pretty exhaustive actually but a lot of the people come here and they make surfboards and uh, in hawaii um there's a, there's a guy that came here and he has a much bigger factory than me in Hawaii now making surfboards with my phone, with my corky method. And, um, and there's quite a few people now that are around the world that are making corky method, method surfboards. They came here, they learned it and now they're out there making their own. And, and if they start a business, that's just fine with me. I, the, the more, the better, like, mm-hmm. that's just mm-hmm. great. Just, um, just try to share it with everybody and, and do a good job. <laughs> <laughs> With the, with the corky boards, do you need to wax them, or do they are they sort of? Well, you don't need to wax them as much, but you still need a little bit of wax. Right. Um, I varnish the cork on the top so it can be a little bit slick, but then again, it's kind of squishy like a soft board, so you can dig your toes into it a little bit, and so you don't need nearly as much wax. That's really. And you probably, I think the only reason I, I wax, I, I varnish them, is because they'd get very dirty. It would just be they would, they would they would stick like crazy, but they'd be very dirty in the end. I understand. Well, I guess Tom, um, going towards the end of this um, this lovely conversation, it's a real pleasure to talk to you. Um, and I just wanted to to sort of talk about your involvement with the University of Sunshine Coast because apparently you you receive students too in your workshop. Well, we do. We um, through the university, we're working on having a there's a surfing class that just started this last semester and had 18 kids and they've absolutely loved it and so i think that university class will carry on and then i'm working with another group of um, academics that are tied in as well where they they say tom we should have an institute here in um noosa and then take that institute make other ones up we'll start in noosa and the idea is kids the way kids learn today is just different because we're, we get them in a classroom and they're sitting in rows and you try to give them the facts and so forth and say, this is, you need to learn this and need to learn this. And I think in, in the reality, they look at their phone and say, I've got the totality of human knowledge of all of history on my phone here. I don't need to memorize anything because if I, if I want to know when the, the, the French revolution happened, it's right here. I can read all about it. And you know, now at this very moment I can. So the thought of of teaching them the way the old fashioned way doesn't really work, and I've seen it. I, I do a lot of talks in high schools, 
and the kids are, you know, some of them are engaged, but most of them are off in space someplace, and they don't want to be there, and they don't respect the teachers, and I think that a lot of the discipline problems in schools arise because they just don't respect the teachers. They don't respect what, what they're trying to be taught. They don't really fit in. It's not really working for them now because they have this knowledge at their fingertips. And what we want at this, the Institute will be, if you're interested in journalism and you're interested in surfing, come and be a surf journalist at the, at the Institute. Or if you're interested in filming and you like surfing, we'll come and, and make movies about surfing and surf TV shows. If you're interested in branding and in business and in marketing, well, surfing has that as well. Come to the Institute. We'll, we'll put you in touch with the Billabong guys, branding, um, how that how the whole world works. Or, you know, mass manufacturer, we'll, we'll put you in touch with Global Surf Industries and we'll talk to you about the concept of that of working with, with overseas manufacturing. Um, whatever it is, surfing has such a wide umbrella. So many aspects of life fit under surfing that the Institute would just be a place where you come with what you want to know. And then we'll say, okay, well, here's your program. We're going to, you have to do something. You, you can't float. If you want to be a professional surfer, then you have to, you know, you can do that as well. You know, but it, it's a place where we listen to you and you listen to us and we learn from each other and we try to create something. Everybody's we're listening to each other, learning from each other, and creating with where they want to be in life. So where do you want to be? I want to be here. Okay, let's help you get there. That's, that is brilliant. I don't think kids want to wait forever and say, oh, let's, I've got to study for the next 15 years to become a doctor, when you can be a doctor on your phone. You know, Again, it's all there. I think that we have to narrow the gap between this is what you want to be when you grow up. Well, let's start you being that right now because you can't start being that right now. And you work your way into this role, kind of just on a different path, but a, a path that's more engaging to them right now. Mm, that's so important, actually. And uh, and I see it with my kids as well. Like, you know, they want to start a business and they they, they just really would could do with the structure to actually help them get that business started and, 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 and go on with their, their projects rather than waiting for four years doing studies that, that they're not really interested in. So, yeah, that's really important. They're growing fast, aren't they? You know, they should say, okay, well, start a business. Go ahead. Let's start, okay, the, the first, this is what you do, this is what you do, this is what you do, here's the literature to read. Um, let's figure this out. Like, my son, you know, he wanted to make skateboard videos. So the first thing he is, he he cracked the codes and illegally downloaded Photoshop or whatever the, the best program at the time was. And then he wanted to learn fades. He learned, he learned everything about how to make really quality videos by himself on the computer with all the software and everything he, he hacked into. Like he didn't cost him a cent. I, I couldn't believe it, you know, but that's just where kids are these days. Cause that's what he wanted to do. And he wanted to do it now. Yeah. Yeah. And so, so how far along is this project of the Institute? Um, it's, it's, it's just a brainchild still. It's probably a year away from it right now. But the, there's there's a, um, some big companies, big like um, publishing companies that are interested because they're looking at it saying, well, this is the field that's going to be published. This is, this is the next great field. All this other stuff, all these papers that are being written are sort of ancient history now. And so they see it as an incubator for a, – a, um, developing curriculum for how to teach kids a new cur curriculum. Yeah. 
And so, um, God, I'm hoping, well, just, just, yeah, a year, just for everybody out there that's interested, um, my webpage, my website is pretty garbage, but at least it'll keep you up to date on that one because that's really exciting. My, my blog. We'll, we'll put, the, put links up, yeah. the links up in the show notes and, the, and there'll be a, an article on medium.com and there'll be all sorts of things to, to actually access well, access uh, everything that we've talked about in this interview. And, so I, and Amy, yeah. I'll let you know. <laughs> I'll let you know as soon as it happens. So you'll be the first to know so we could put we could maybe do this again with with, you know, a group of educators next year. Absolutely. That would be such a, such a pleasure and an honor. That would be really, really fun. And so um, I guess we're almost wrapping up. Um, and I just had a, have a few sort of generic questions I like to ask my guests at the end. Um, the first one is, um, their sentence is to finish. So um, the first sentence would be, I love. Oh, my family. <laughs> I miss. Oh, my family, because I'm from California and they're over there. <laughs> uh, I wish. I wish people would just spend more time with each other talking and hanging out and not rushing. Lovely. And the last one is I want. Uh, I want a Aloha surfing spirit to make their way into um, – China and India and Bangladesh and all these places that have surf where people really aren't surfing because surfing is so enjoyable for so many people and it's been around for ever and in a lot of places it's like India you India had a thriving culture of people that were called catamaran people who were incredible watermen and surfers and that's disappeared you know there's no there's almost nothing left of that if there's anything left at all and in, in Sri Lanka as well surfing was very popular and it just actually ended and they, to bring it back again because um, like in Nathan Oldfield's movie that back in in um there was a gentleman that was whose family and everybody was washed out by the tsunami and he found surfing as his way to find happiness and joy in his life again that's beautiful. That's beautiful, Tom. That really is. And um, if um, if there was something that you could sort of say to your young self, um, you know, uh, rewind a few years, is there anything in particular you'd say to yourself? <laughs> nothing, nothing good. I kept thinking to myself, God, I, I wish I, I wish I did school a lot more in high school, but I probably shouldn't say that. <laughs> Surfing, man, a, a day spent surfing is a great day. That, that, that's it. Like, but like, like when I'm thinking about surfing and, you know, you have, you're in the zone and you're enjoying yourself, it's like you're talking to God face to face. Mm. So if you're talking to God face to face and you're there and your phone rings, are you going to answer it? <laughs> you should, if you've you answered it, you'd be a fool. Exactly. No, exactly. no. You just, you just, you just say, no, this, this is, I'm here right now. This is the goal. I'm, I'm, you know, this is marvelous. This is as good as it gets. Basically I'm here at the beach and it doesn't, and that's the thing is it doesn't cost anything. And if you're sharing with your friends, it's even better. <laughs> yeah. So, so that, that's it. That's, that's, you know, just valuing that as much as you can, because I think, you know, it, it is fleeting because the, the reality tends to catch up with you and you always have to do a really hard work and do things you generally don't want to do. But I think if you enjoy that time, everything's your whole life's a lot better. Yeah. And and really appreciate that time. Like just going, yeah, man, that was marvelous. Did it. You know, my tank is full. <laughs> 
That's fantastic. Well, so before we wrap up, the last thing is to, um, how can we get hold of you um, and uh, where to find you online um, if we want to connect with you? This is your, your sort of promotion time. Okay. Um, usually I'm really good at promotions, but um, uh, I have an Instagram, Tom at Tom Wagoner Surfboards. Dot, that, so, so, no, wait a minute. That's my email. Um, Instagram is Tom Wagoner Surfboards. And then my website is Tom Wagoner Surfboards.com. Then the email is Tom at Tom Wagoner Surfboards.com. And then on my website, there's a bit of a blog, but it, it's a little bit out of date. Um, the, it, it seems like Instagram is just where it's at, but it's not great, but it's pretty good because like, you know, you look back and there's three or 400 posts now. And if you want to show somebody something, it's really difficult where a blog is probably the best thing. And like putting this, this, this interview with, that we've had up on, a, up on the blog will be really great. That's the best way. So yeah, just my website is it. Yeah, that's fantastic. Please, thank you. <laughs> okay, then, Tom. Well, thank you ever so much for being such a fantastic guest. Um, and um, I'll put everything in the show notes so the listeners will be able to um, to find find all the contact details. And uh, I wish you all the best with the the PhD and um, and uh, going around the world teaching other shapers to to make surfboards um, with the Corky method. And um, and just uh, aloha to to. Um, to, to you and your family. Thank you ever so much for being such a cool guest. Well, thank you, Amy. It's been really fun. Really fun. Thank you so much. <laughs> well, it's been an honor. Cheers. Thank okay, you. ciao. I love this conversation and I hope you did too. I just love the way Tom has one foot in the past in surfing archaeology and one foot in the future with his, with his approach to education and his new institute project. I guess if there's anything to take from this conversation, it's you can make a surfboard. So get out there and start using your hands. To get hold of Tom, you can connect to his website www.tomwegenersurfboards.com or follow him on Instagram at Tom Wegener Surfboards. You can also find him on Facebook and all the links um, to these social networks are in the show notes in your podcasting app or on my website, theoceanriderspodcast.com. There's also an illustrated article on medium.com and you can find links to it in the show notes. The Ocean Riders podcast is a weekly podcast, so if you like it, please subscribe. Um, every week I'll be receiving a new guest who has an incredible story to share. If you fancy joining the conversation after the episode, you're welcome to. Um, you can find our Facebook group called The Ocean Riders Community. All my guests and obviously uh, listeners can post information, job offers, uh, anything that they loved about surfing or any comments on this episode. So please join the group. If you need to remember one website to access all the others, you, you can use my link tree to pave your way to your preferred social platform. The address is www.linktr.ee slash the Ocean Riders podcast. If you'd like to share your story and be a guest on my show, you can connect with me at hello at the Ocean Riders podcast dot com or via Instagram at the Ocean Riders podcast. Thank you, Tom, for being such an amazing guest. And thank you for listening. 
that wraps things up for this week. I'll be back next week with another awesome guest. Until next time, take care, have fun and enjoy the waves. Ciao.